Hello, AJT readers. Welcome to the August edition of the AJT Highlights podcast. I'm Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, your host. And today I'm joined by one of our special guests, Sanjay Kulkarni. Professor Kulkarni is in the Department of Surgery. He's the Surgical Director of Kidney Transplantation, the Interim Director of Transplant Surgery, and Medical Director of New England Donor Services. Uh, He's located at Yale University. Sanjay, thanks for joining us and subbing for the um, sabbatical Josh Levitsky that he's on that seems will go on forever. And our fellow today, yeah, good to have you. And our fellow today is Louisa Holzhauser. Louisa is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Cardiac Transplant at the University of Pennsylvania. Our run of show today will start with a paper by Nielsen and colleagues in real life settings risk factors, coronary artery calcium score, and coronary stenosis at computerized tomography angiography are associated with MACE and all-cause mortality following kidney transplant candidates. And Luisa will be talking about that paper. Our next paper will be by Lee et al., The Minimum Weight and Age of Kidney Donors, on-block kidney transplantation from preterm neonatal donors weighing less than 1.2 kilograms to adult recipients. This is actually a case series uh, presented will be presented by Dr. Kulkarni, and it has an accompanying editorial by Thomas Nakagawa. Our next paper will be the paper by Cron et al., Increased Volume of Organ Offers and Decreased Efficiency of Kidney Placement Under Circle-Based Kidney Allocation. Our fourth paper will be done by me, uh, by uh, Gerard et al., Recipient Race Modifies the Association Between Obesity and Long-Term Graft Outcomes After tra- Transplant. And our last paper will be a basic science paper, a very interesting paper by Larson et al. from the University of Minnesota, Enforced Gut Homing of Murine Regulatory T-Cells Reduces Early Graft Versus Host Disease Severity. So I know we don't typically talk about bone marrow transplant, but this is an interesting paper that has some applications to the transplant world. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to our, our transplant editorial fellow, Louisa Holzhauser. And tell us a little bit about your paper. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here today to access this exciting paper by Nielsen et al. and on coronary calcium score and coronary CT for uh, risk assessment pre-kidney transplant. Now, it is of course well established that kidney failure and dialysis are indeed associated with increased cardiovascular risks. And patient screening for occult coronary disease before renal transplant is really a debated topic. There's some recent evidence showing that there's no real benefit from coronary revascularization prior to kidney transplantation. Now, in this single-center retrospective study from Denmark, the authors aim to investigate the association between cardiovascular risk factors, coronary artery calcium score, or CAC, coronary CT, major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, and all-cause mortality in kidney transplant candidates who were referred to this center. Now, it's important to take a closer look at these definitions. MACE was defined as cardiac death, cardiac arrest with resuscitation, ST elevation MI and non-ST elevation MI, elective revascularization, stroke, and TIA, as well as death following a stroke. Cardiovascular risk factors are defined to be older than 60 years of age, having diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, active smoking, needing dialysis for more than one year, left ventricular hypertrophy, and established cardiovascular disease. The study included 529 kidney transplant candidates, 
um, who were undergoing evaluation between 2015 and 2019, and had a mean follow-up of 4.7 years. Patients underwent cardiac evaluations prior to kidney transplant if they were older than 40 years of age, had diabetes, or had been on dialysis for more than five years. And the evaluation then included CAC and coronary CT, or in some patients like those with known coronary disease, an invasive coronary angiogram. Notably, the CTs were analyzed in a core laboratory by an experienced cardiologist who was blinded to the outcome. And CAC was performed and analyzed in 83% of patients and coronary CT in 78% of patients. Now, one of the really remarkable things about the study is that out of the 467 kidney transplant candidates who were waitlisted or underwent transplantation at the center, 83% were part of this analysis, which really represents a real, real-world experience, so to speak. Of the total cohort of 376 patients undergoing both CAC, uh, both CAG and coronary CT, and to compare the prognostic ability of risk factors CAG and coronary CT, the authors formed a sub-cohort to establish patients undergoing both testing. And the main reason for not undergoing coronary CT following CAG was the high CAG result. Interestingly, in patients undergoing both CAG and coronary CT, these had fewer risk factors compared to the total cohort, and less patients had a high CAC score. Now looking at some outcomes. In the total cohort, MACE occurred in 17% of patients, and notably MACE was less frequent among patients with both CAC and coronary CT, and more frequent in patients with more than three cardiovascular risk factors. Male gender, dyslipidemia, diabetes, and established cardiovascular disease were associated with an increased risk of MACE. Overall, after adjusting for sex, age, diabetes, and established cardiovascular disease, a CAC score of greater than 400, two-vessel and three-vessel, as well as left main coronary disease, remained associated with a greater risk of MACE. Now, in patients undergoing both CAC and coronary CT, having more than three risk factors was no longer associated with an increased risk of MACE. And in this cohort, a CAC score above 400, two- and three-vessel disease, as well as left main disease, were significantly associated with MACE. Now, remarkably, there was no certain difference in the ability of either risk factors, CAG or coronary CT, to really discriminate the risk of MACE. What about all-cause mortality? Among all included patients, having more than three cardiovascular risk factors was significantly associated with a higher risk of all-cause mortality, as already shown from MACE before. And in patients undergoing both CAG and coronary CT, when adjusted for sex, age, diabetes, and established cardiovascular disease, only three vessel disease and left main disease were associated with an increased all-cause mortality risk. And again, as already discussed for MACE, the number of risk factors, total CAG and coronary CT, did not differ in their ability to discriminate the patient's risk of all-cause mortality. Transplantation. 87% of patients were approved for transplantation and 67% underwent kidney transplantation. Perhaps not surprisingly, patients with less than three risk factors had a greater probability of undergoing transplantation compared to patients with more than three risk factors. Interestingly, risk factors, but neither CAG nor coronary CT, were associated with the time to transplantation. While the risk of MACE and all-cause mortality decreased drastically following transplantation, the risk of MACE and all-cause mortality in patients with a CAG score of greater than 400 or two-vessel disease remained higher after transplantation. Now, in summary, and first to note, this was a real-world study based on clinical decision-making and included a relatively large number of unselected patients with end-stage renal disease. Patients were included based only on age, diabetes, and time on dialysis. 
And this excluded bias resulting from subjective elevation of symptoms, which is one of the main struggles of cardiovascular risk assessment for kidney transplant candidates. And the study showed that both cardiovascular risk factors, as well as CAC and coronary CT findings, were associated with an increased risk of MACE and mortality among unselected kidney transplant candidates. And unselected is really the keyword here. Now, looking at patients who were evaluated by both CAC and coronary CT, these three findings were associated with the risk of MACE and all-cause mortality, whereas having more than three risk factors was only associated with all-cause mortality. Patients who underwent both CAC and coronary CT might be considered at lower risk of overall disease. Otherwise, the CTA would not have been deformed if the CAC score would have been really high. And in this cohort, patients overall had less risk factors and a lower event rate. Now, what is important to note is that the study included all kidney transplant candidates, also those who did not undergo CAC or CT, but were referred for invasive coronary angiogram. And this likely led to the exclusion of some higher risk patients. Another important point is that only risk factors, but not COG or coronary CT findings, predicted time on the waiting list. And there was no difference in the ability of risk factors, CAC or CTA, to predict MACE and all-cause mortality. So while in these lower risk patients, systematic screening with CAC and coronary CT may provide additional prognostic information on MACE and all-cause mortality, this should absolutely not replace evaluation by risk factors. And I initially mentioned some new evidence on coronary artery disease screening pre-kidney transplant. The ischemia CKD trial included asymptomatic patients listed for kidney transplantation in a post-hoc subgroup analysis of the entire cohort of the entire cohort. These patients had moderate to severe ischemia on stress testing, so they were not low risk. In these patients, there was no benefit of an initial invasive strategy really questioning the role of non-invasive assessment and coronary revascularization in patients with asymptomatic myocardial ischemia, ejection fraction greater than 35%, and no left main coronary disease. So, while invasive and conservative strategies were equally affected in the ischemia CKD trial, it is crucially important to realize that in both study groups, there was implementation of optimal medical therapy with intense treatment of dyslipidemia. Meanwhile, while revascularization might not improve outcomes per se, focus on optimization of risk factors is crucially important in detecting coronary artery disease with a coronary CT or CAC versus intervening with stenting is not the same. For example, kidney transplantation may reduce the progression of vascular calcification, but in the study we're just discussing here today, patients with a CAC score greater than 400 or multivessel disease still had an increased risk of MACE and all-cause mortality after transplantation further highlighting the need for continued and optimal preventive therapy in these patients. So I think that an important takeaway from the study is the focus on risk factor detection and awareness, as well as risk factor modification with or without non-invasive screening, irrespective of the debated benefit on revascularization in asymptomatic patients. Now, going forward, of course, further studies are needed to, one, clarify the clinical benefit of cardiac CT for the selection of kidney transplant candidates, and Second, clarify the benefit of additional prognostic information on cardiovascular outcomes following kidney transplantation. And that was it. Thank you so much. You know, really an interesting study and certainly, um, you know, beyond echo and standard sort of non-invasive screening that we do, I, I don't think we typically do CT or evaluation of coronary calcification. So my first question is, you are from Europe. So is this a standard approach 
used in European kidney transplant centers or just something specific to Denmark? Or maybe we're just sort of, you know, in the boonies and we're not we're not up to date. We're just doing a lot of, you know, maybe scans and stuff on patients. Well, I am from Europe. I haven't practiced medicine there in a very long time. So I would have to defer that question, but I can speak a little bit more to my own experience as somebody seeing pre-kidney uh, transplant patients in clinic. And really the crucial point here is the question of who is symptomatic and who is asymptomatic, right? And then, for example, the ischemia trial, looking at patients of moderate and severe ischemia and um, being on dialysis, and still being asymptomatic, mm-hmm. that is not frequently the case. And also, how do you define asymptomatic in these patients? And what does it mean? Uh, frequently, they're diabetic, right, long-term. And so this is one of the most crucially and I find very difficult to assess questions. And um, the coronary CTA seems like a reasonable first step to do here. And then the other important point that I really think is crucially to understand is that studying detecting coronary disease and possibly being more aggressive with risk factor modification is not the same as preemptive revascularization. So I think this is really what we show here that you know, what we still do in practice sometimes is like data from like 30 years ago when there was indeed some benefit from revascularization prior for a newly identified stenosis, but this was in an area of much, much inferior medical therapy. Mm-hmm. So. This is really, I think, where the the focus should be. Sanjay, I know you have a question. Hi, very nice presentation. You know, in our center at Yale, we've just started over the last year doing a few more of coronary CTAs. And one of the questions that pops up is the criticism that it may not be a functional study. And I wonder if you have any comments regarding the functionality of a coronary CTA versus that of a of a cardiac catheterization, or do you really think there's not much difference? Well, there is, I mean, this kind of comes back to the question of, for example, talking about fractional flow reserve or how a coronary lesion really is determined to be significant. And there are advances in that to be amplified via coronary CT, but this is, of course, still indeed done in uh, in invasive assessments frequently. And that depends on the patient who is in front of you and what is their cardiac function? Um, is it somebody who is at higher risk? For example, in the ischemia trial, they were talking about patients with an F greater than 35% who were asymptomatic. So that totally kind of shifts, I think, in which patient, which testing modality should be done. I think another comment to point out to the readers as well is that this this cohort is a little bit different than U.S. patient populations. And just to frame it in the context that, you know, almost two-thirds, maybe about two-thirds, maybe a little more of their, of this cohort was preemptively transplanted. In the vast majority, many transplant centers, these patients have long-established CKD, ESKD, they're on dialysis, pro-inflammation, you know, as a, as a, as a non-traditional cardiac risk factor. So, I think we just need to um, add that and and that the ischemia, this is an interesting study not to dispute it in any way, but just to highlight that this population may be a little bit different than than folks that we see that are waiting and waiting. But granted, they did do the pre and then they did the others that are assessed. So great job, Luis. It's it's good having um, a member of the cardiology team. We might have to have you come back and help us with some other work. Thank you so, so much. I'd be you're welcome. Okay. 
Sanjay, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let's hear about this case series from Lee and, and tell us why this this really required an editorial, because we rarely see case reports being reported on in terms of being a, a commentary. Yeah, thanks, Roz. And, and very true, you know, having a case report commented on by an editorial that was very thought-provoking. I think it largely is based on the fact that it brings up major ethical issues. And before we get into that, let me just start reviewing the paper itself. Uh, the, the paper's entitled uh, The Minimum Weight and Age of Kidney Donors on Block Kidney Transplantation from Preterm Neonatal Donors Weighing Less Than 1.2 Kilos to Adult Recipients. Now, there have been some papers that have published on the use of um, on-block kidneys from donors less than five kilos. And I think what really makes this uh, a unique paper is they're using neonatal donors. And uh, in, in the context of uh, donation after cardiac death, very, uh, very soon after birth. So... They describe in this case report um, two cases of successful uh, pediatric on-block kidneys from preterm neonatal donation after circulatory death into adult recipients. The first case was a preterm female infant that was born in twenty at 29 weeks gestational age and weighed only 1.07 kilos. The recipient was a 34-year-old woman that weighed uh, 75 kilos. And the second case they describe was a uh, preterm female infant born at 29 weeks uh, and five days gestation, uh, weighing just 1.17 kilos that was transplanted to a 25-year-old woman weighing 46 kilos. I think anybody who's done pediatric on-block kidneys knows that one of the, in addition to donor weight and size, uh, the key is actually recipient selection. You don't want to transplant these into individuals who, for example, have uncontrolled hypertension for obvious reasons. So patient selection is very key. And, and in this, in these two cases, it's very clear that the, that the group abided by that and put it into very low risk, sort of smaller individuals. I think it's important to note that as all pediatric on-block kidney cases, the creatinine doesn't come down immediately. And indeed, it did take a while. And they report at five months post-surgery, the, the first case, the creatinine dropped to 1.48. And then the second case by five months dropped to 1.47. So it does take a while for these kidneys to hypertrophy and for the renal function to uh, drop. I think one of the... Um, very interesting parts of this case is the lack of proteinuria in these donors. Though the uh, case series doesn't really describe, you know, quantitative levels of proteinuria, they do men mention that it was minimal. And certainly one of the huge cautions that people have in using uh, donors of this size into adult uh, individuals is the idea that you can get hyperfiltration, proteinuria, glomerulosclerosis, vascular changes as well. The first case, it, I thought was very interesting in that the, the, the kidneys were transplanted pretty much in a usual fashion, you know, utilizing the aorta as the infrarenal aorta as the uh, anastomotic site to the external iliac artery and then the vena cava to the external iliac vein and, and the suprarenal aorta and vena cava were ligated. The kidneys were only about three centimeters each, but what was very interesting, I thought, 
was that um, ultrasounds conducted after transplant, you actually see the kidneys hypertrophying close to eight centimeters. So despite that level of hypertrophy in an adult recipient, you're not seeing, according to this study, a significant amount of proteinuria, which I actually found surprising. I'll point out one additional thing that was very interesting in this paper, and that refers to figure B. And that is in case study from a technical perspective, how they conducted the second study. So the second transplant rather. So instead of ligating the suprarenal artery, uh, aorta, they actually anastomosed that to the inferior epigastric artery of the recipient. So not only was there inflow that was then goes to the kidneys and in, then interrupted by ligation of the aorta, it was a outflow tract into the inferior epigastric, clearly potentially done to uh, decrease pressure on the kidneys and decrease hyperfiltration. From the data they've given, uh, it's really hard to determine how successful that was. And then again, it's the N of one. However, I think most surgeons and, and nephrologists would find that a very interesting way of, of doing a, a transplant. I think it was very, very unique. So this it has the potential to obviously have a huge amount of utility when it comes to expanding the donor pool. Nobody likes to consider that uh, because of the, the, you know, obviously the ethical issues potentially behind it. And that's why it was associated with an editorial with by uh, Nakagawa, which was actually, I encourage everyone to read because he outlines not just the paper itself, but really what the standard is in determining brain death in, in infants and what the restrictions are in terms of gestational age and um, in terms of uh, uh, time from birth and the complexities that surround around doing um, DCD donation as well. So I encourage everyone to, to read that. But in that article, you know, he really points out that if this is successful and expanded even to a, a, a small extent in, in neonatal ICUs throughout the world, it will dramatically increase the availability of organs for transplant. My only caution with that statement is, again, probably not for every single recipient because you really have to be careful in the recipients that you uh, transplant these into. And obviously, uh, individuals with end-stage renal disease, there's a high incidence of, you know, really poorly controlled hypertension. So although there's a huge utility argument there, I, I do think it needs to be proceeded with caution, uh, perhaps some ethical consensus and debate, uh, and then formulate a, you know, a, a governance and structure where this can be uh, performed responsibly and, and expanded responsibly. Well, great, great comments and, and insight to this. I thought it was fascinating. I had sort of a weird feeling about it because you know of the the loss of these uh, of these neonates of these children at such an early age and the ability to have someone consent for donation, um, but also just the technical aspects. I would have been afraid of thrombosis, but I read that they did. Uh, anticoagulate. So again, it, this is going to be taking a bit of time, and I believe you're maybe on the UNOS Ethics Committee. So this might be something to start yeah. thinking about. But we'll see. I think it's. I think it's just interesting to see the 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 extent we've been pushing ourselves in terms of trying to expand the donor pool. No doubt. And um, Raz, I think you make a really good point there that that 
you alluded to consent or authorization rather. And, you know, certainly all family members are traumatized with the death of a loved one uh, in a deceased donor setting. I worry that the level of required adjustment in this context of having an infant die maybe maybe requires an additional layer of, you know, time because I, I, I don't think they're the same things. And I, again, brings up ethical issues that need to be resolved regarding authorization in this context. Not that I want to cut us off because this has been an interesting discussion so far, but for sake of time, let's go and talk a little bit about CAS 250 and the uh, David Cron paper. We'd be happy to. So this paper is entitled Increased Volume of Organ Offers and Decreased Efficiency of Kidney Transplant Under Circle-Based Kidney Allocation. And in a nutshell, what this paper tries to describe is the changes at a transplant center level from the implementation of CAS 250. The fact that CAS 250 is essentially an N iteration of, of an evolving allocation system that is going to evolve into continuous distribution. And is there something we can learn from the transplant center's experience regarding the volume of organ offers and the logistical challenges that may be applicable to future iterations, including implementation of continuous distribution. And this was an SRTR database study, and it really highlights the fact that after uh, CAS 250 was implemented, transplant centers received many more deceased donor kidney organ offers. And the volume of organ offers really did not translate into more transplant at a more deceased donor transplants at a transplant center level. So in a sense, what the paper's arguing is increased burden of logistics of individuals having to take uh, organ offers that didn't really translate into more transplants. I think this is an important consideration and it reflects differently on different transplant centers. There are transplant centers that obviously um, do this internally and and transplant surgeons or fellows take on the burden of of the extra organ offers. And there are other transplant centers that that outsources and have algorithms where maybe the uh, physicians and surgeons aren't aren't bothered as much. So I think it impacts transplant centers differently depending on how they're receiving the organ offers. I would point everyone to the first figure, which I think is a very important one, or sorry, rather figure two, which if you want to get a nutshell of what this paper is about, it's really about figure 2A, where it it basically shows a pre and post uh, CAS 250 organ offers that dramatically went up. I will point out that organ offers were already going up, but not as dramatically as uh, they did after CAS. One issue I do have with the paper that I think may require additional discussion is the idea that this potentially could lead to more discards. And I think that's tough to prove. I think there's a lot of reasons that the U.S. transplant system has had more discards, and it may not just be because of more organ offers. Certainly, OPOs have been more aggressive, and we know that, uh, regarding pursuing more high-risk organs. And the other thing that I, I don't think was necessarily proved was a lack of 
efficiency in the system. I think it really depends on how you define efficiency. Just because you're having more organ offers doesn't necessarily mean that it's more efficient that you're going to do more transplants. So I think they just need to be a little careful about how they define those two things. I do think it gives real careful thought and consideration to how transplant centers are going to need to tackle continuous distribution. I think that's overall that point the paper makes is really well taken. But regarding whether it's a more or less efficient system, our transplant system has trans our transplant system in the United States has been transplanting more kidney uh, nationally. So in a sense, that it's that part is sort of hard to argue with. And that's a great summary. And I, you know, appreciate your, your really insightful comments, particularly as we approach this notion of continuous distribution. I've heard some of these authors present this as an abstract, and it almost seems like a plea that transplant centers in some locations don't have the resources, don't have, you know, whether it's staffing, enough surgeons, operating room time, which is always, you know, at a crisis level at any medical center I've ever been at, including one of the big transplant centers where you're always trying to get in the OR. And is that related to the lack of utilization of authorized organs, i.e. discards? You know, it's it's hard. It's unclear to me. I do think that um, as a field, there are a lot of changes going on in the transplant system. Um, soon to be metrics employed on OPOs by CMS. And I think we just have to be talking about these things and thinking about how do we, you know, we're, we're revving up the system. How do we respond to it? And I think the hard part it is, isn't that we're not dedicated. It's our medical centers, you know, they're just, sometimes they don't really seem to understand how this is going on. And they're like, oh, those transplant people want an operating room again, you know, like, oh, we can't do the, the hip surgery, you know, because we've got to get bring this kidney in. And I think, you know, communicating to the leadership has been, you know, I think for me, always a very big challenge. And I don't want to get you into political hot water with your own. No, no, that's a good point. (laughs) I I would say this, one one additional point that needs to be made is there's no uniform way OPOs offer organs. Mm -hmm. So, there, there's it's very heterogeneous. So regardless of your organ allocation policy, there's OPOs that will go ahead and make an organ offer to a certain sequence that may be very, very different than another one. Uh, certainly each one has time limits, mm-hmm. but I think that's a huge variable here because if an OPO is going to go ahead and offer, your, their original offer is going to be to the top 70 patients and there's another one who's uh, top 30 patients, that's going to really be a huge variable that that this particular um, study didn't adjust for. Great point. Another great point for sure. Well, listen, guys, I, I need to get on with presenting my stuff. I always wait to the end so I can edit a bit so I can give you all more time. So let me um, go ahead and get started. My, so my first paper is an SRTR evaluation by Farrar, Tenacor, and Vincent from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. And it looks at and evaluates the impact of race on both recipient obesity and donor-recipient obesity pairing for both long and short-term outcomes of kidney transplant. And I won't belabor the the impact and importance of obesity and in the, in the, in the expanding population and its impact on cardiovascular disease and outcomes. And a lot of studies that have focused on recipient obesity, a lot of scrutiny now about how 
centers are setting um, these limits that they may be uh, limiting access to transplant by requiring weight loss that, you know, may come off of the transplant and then patients gain it back and how does that affect it? And certainly a recent meta-analysis showed that um, in obese patients, that there was a small difference, there was a small increase in death center graft loss. The real impact was in DGF. And we use, again, BMI as our obesity proxy, um, which is problematic in of itself because fat distributions vary in sex and also in age over time. And there also have been suggestions that in some races, particularly, say, for Asians, where they have significant metabolic complications, their BMIs are lower. And so maybe just saying obesity is bad may not be fitting every population. So this study looked at uh, recipient obesity and these combinations of recipient and donor obesity and, and long-term outcomes defined by death center graft loss and all-cause graft loss, as well as short-term outcomes of um, early graft loss and DGF using delay graft function using sort of standard terminology. And this was an SRTR data study of of individuals from 2000 to 2016. The consort diagram is shown in figure one. And essentially, the um, there were a number of exclusions done in this population. It only focused on blacks and focused on whites based on their self-description in SRTR. Um, and it, and it, the primary exposure was obesity defined as a BMI greater than 30. And the population that it was compared to were non-obese, meaning people between a BMI of 18.5 and 25. So overweight were excluded and underweight less than 18.5 were excluded as well. And essentially, I'll, I'll go to the meat of the paper. You know, when you look at figure two, they evaluate, um, adjusted hazard ratios for death censored graft loss between whites and blacks that are obese relative to non-obese. And you can see that there's an impact that being black actually reduced uh, the hazard ratio actually had an attenuating uh, influence on death censored graft loss, which is sort of interesting. But it, And it had a very significant impact on all-cause graft loss, which includes death. But it had really no impact. Both races that were obese recipients did similarly in terms of early, early graft loss and, and delayed graft function. The rate of DGF overall in the whole cohort was about 18%. And uh, estimated graph, uh, early graft loss was only about 2%. There were some notable differences baseline between whites and blacks. Again, lots more, about 45% of whites had living donors versus only about 20% in blacks, but they did do a sensitivity and propensity score analysis, which I'll mention. And then they look at these pairings of, you know, obese donor and an obese recipient versus obese donor in a non-obese recipient versus non-obese in an obese recipient and compared it to both being non-obese. And importantly, shown here, there is an, again, an attenuation when both donor and recipient are obese, when the recipient is African-American um, or identified as Black, there's an attenuation of death-centered graft loss, somewhat of an atten attenuation only in both the obese donor-obese recipient combination um, when the recipient is Black, and really no impact on um, these both delayed graft function or early graft loss. And they actually did uh, sensitivity analysis using graded increases over 30 in terms of obesity and saw similar trends. And then they did a propensity scoring match cohort of about 25,000 obese 
uh, white recipients matched to 25,000 black recipients. And even adjusting for all the differences in the cohort, the match cohorts really seem to show the same individual attenuation in long-term graft outcome, suggesting that, again, the notion of limiting obesity between the races may need to be re- to rethought, rethinking about it. And it's funny, and you know, when you think about patients with higher body mass on dialysis, black patients tend to be the ones that have better survival when they're bigger. And I use bigger in quotations that no one can see on this podcast. But again, the detection of uh, lean body mass versus, you know, fat body mass is very, it is not picked up by BMI. It's one big measurement. And so that may be a, a specific limitation of us using BMI, you know, solo. I think this paper has a little bit of controversy because, you know, in the last few years, we've been talking about access and, and the limitations of access and structural racism in the healthcare system. And I would have imagined that the propensity scoring sort of adjusted for some of those differences. But it may be that obesity-related risk by any metric is attenuated because of higher baseline status in terms of graft outcome. You know, I think there are limitations, as we've already talked about. It's not clear that BMI is the best, you know, anthropomorphic measure, but it may be the only one that's practical. I think it's difficult. These skinfold thickness and doing some of these other weight-specific studies is quite difficult. Um, there are limitations in determining, you know, defined race in, in databases. And um, I think, you know, overall, this study really looks at time of trans, you know, the time of registration when the BMI is reported. We all know that post kidney transplant, everyone gets bigger, even on steroid free protocols. People feel better. They eat better. They may shift up their weight significantly. Some, you know, become non are non-obese and then become obese. And so we don't really know the impact of later obesity on these long-term outcomes because that's not accounted for in the study. So I think the the last point the authors make is, you know, do we need, are the BMI threshold cutoffs that we use in our programs relevant and should they be adjusted for different races? And that's kind of controversial because we just took race out of the GFR equation. We are, we're looking to take it out of uh, KDRI, uh, KDPI as well. But this is one where, you know, genetics factors and body mass may be affected by it. Any comments or thoughts, guys? Otherwise, I'll go into the last paper I have. And this is by a, a large collaborative group, but primarily the first author is Gemma Larson and the senior author is, is Bruce Blazer, uh, immunologist at the University of Minnesota. And this study looks at genetically modifying regulatory T cells. So T cells, you know, tend to home to areas of inflammation. And there is a graft versus host disease model that they utilize, which is very well known where there's inflammation in both small, small intestine and colon. And there are specific homing patterns and molecules that have been worked out already, both in mice and people, in terms of some uh, receptors on T cells known as CCR9. And there are specific ligands that bind to in the gut. And so there's a lot of speculation that if you block the ability of T cells to home to these areas, in particular, regulatory T cells that have these homing receptors, you know, how could you affect or at least abrogate graft versus host disease? And so certainly there have been some prior studies that have shown if you infuse T regs, you can mitigate graft versus host disease in the small bowel. And in, certainly in patients that have upregulation of regulatory T cells with these receptors, 
those individuals have less likelihood or reduced risk of grass versus host. And I can't remember if that study was done in peripheral blood or based on uh, gut aspirates. I think it was peripheral blood. So there is some evidence suggesting that if you can abrogate um, or if you can disrupt this um, interaction of T cells with these ligands and have regulatory T cells present, it might be better. And so the authors investigate homing to both the colon and small intestine. I, I won't go into the specific details because it, you really should try to read the paper, but the two um, receptors are, are CCR9 and GPR15, um, both which they're in the small bowel and colon respectively. And using this mouse model and infusion of these regulatory, these genetically modified cells that have upregulation of these ligands versus control vectors, they actually show that the clinical scores, there is a clinical score for mice for graft versus host disease, but it's the things you'd expect like fur integrity and, and well-being and body weight that, that animals that receive these modified Tregs actually do better. And then they do some very um, elegant kind of work. They do bioluminescent imaging. So they actually can do both whole animal imaging, looking for fluorescent, that are luminescence of these um, Tregs that are trafficked in or and or they actually can externalize colon and small bowel and do the imaging there. And I think importantly, they did note that the number of these genetically modified Tregs actually increases. The GPR15, the ones that went to the colon, seem to be the ones that got in the earliest and stayed the longest. But these cells eventually disappear. And by day 21, the cell number counts are down over time. So they do have this clinical impact on the mouse model. They're found and localized into the gut where they're expected, but they don't stay forever. And certainly by day 21, though the GPR15 cells seemed higher, uh, they all kind of go down. It's worth looking um, at those figures, which is figure three. They also look at gut integrity. They also did some histology. Again, um, the histology really, you know, then they did flow cytometry I th and they actually, you know, pulled the cells out of the gut and those frequencies of Tregs were actually increased. So they document that the Tregs not only are physically there, um, but they're also functionally there. And so to cut to the chase, I think this is really a nice proof of principle that you can um, genetically modify Tregs and you can enhance their their tracking and homing responsibilities. And, and since this seems to work well in small bowel and colon and small bowel in particular, is this a potential clinical therapy, targeted therapy for small bowel transplant where repeated rejection is a common issue, even with high doses of immunosuppression, the gut is just very hard to modify the immunologic responses and possibly for things like Crohn's disease where there's a lot of um, small bowel inflammation and we're giving all the systemic therapy that has uh, difficulties. I think, you know, there's some limitations. I think that, you know, while the cells track there, retaining them was a problem. And so the, there's an editorial by Hockey from Megan Levging's lab talking about maybe having a chimeric antigen receptor also on the cell to retain them in tissue, because certainly a lot of these adoptive T-cell therapies and, and transplant circumstances have really been, they've just been sort of not a failure. They've been partially successful, but the cells don't stick around forever and they eventually disappear. And so they don't have long acting functions. So maybe that's one way to make them sustainable and remain within the organ they're supposed to be at. And while these cells were in the tissue, it wasn't clear whether 
these cells are always active, certainly in vitro, transfecting with these uh, upregulated receptors for homing doesn't affect their ability to suppress in vitro, but it wasn't clear, you know, how sustained they are in terms of their immunological function, although they did some measures looking uh, within the organ itself in terms of expression of interferon and TNF. So I think this is, you know, sort of an early sort of interesting paper, obviously needs some additional, um, you know, some really nice mechanistic insights by this group and, you know, potentially with significant translational and clinical impact over a period of time. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.